Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the House of Pod, a show where we pull back the curtain on the world of medicine, we answer questions about your health, and we interview great guests. I'm Joe, and I'm not a doctor. And I'm Lizzie. And I'm Kaveh. And we're two gastroenterologists. What's a gastroenterologist? You know, the doctors who work with your digestive system. Say like, what? You know, your liver, your pancreas, your intestines. Where now? Your butt, Joe. It's your butt. Oh. And now And welcome back to the Pod. I'm Kabe. I'm Lizzie. Lizzie, did you know that researchers have recently said that about half of social media posts on the topic of coronavirus are coming from bots? I did not know that. That is an That's... actual fact that I just saw today. It's been reported in a couple mm. of different papers, and I absolutely believe it. But, you know, one thing I will say about us, mm-hmm. we may not have all the facts. We will never pretend to be experts in epidemiology. We will never pretend to be experts in infectious disease, but you know what we are good at? Not being bots. That and finding out who does know what they're talking about, the experts, and asking them. And so that's who we have on the show today. We have Dr. Stuart Cohen. He is an infectious disease and an epidemiologist at UC Davis. Um, Super smart guy, lots of great information. You uh, came in to the Mm -hmm. conversation a, a wee bit late, you a ran little bit into, late. There was you, a paint situation. A paint situation. Can, we'll leave it at I that. Can, leave yeah. it vague. Leave it vague. Yeah, yeah. And that's for, that's for the listeners. So you the know, listeners, just to, te- just to tease the listeners a little right. bit. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Um, but it's a great episode. Let's get right to it. Um, remember, if you guys want to contact us, find us at Twitter at the House of Pod, or email us hopquestions at gmail.com. Tell all of your friends, not just one or two, every single one, in a weird way. 
uh, and just do that as much as you can about our show and uh, like and subscribe if you haven't already On today's show, we have Dr. Stuart Cohen, the Chief of Infectious Disease and the Director of Hospital Epidemiology and Infection Control at UC Davis. Uh, Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for coming on. I know how busy you are right now. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Um, Okay, I got a lot of questions I got to ask you. Um, The first one I want to ask is about the virus itself. I mean, we call it the novel coronavirus because it's recently discovered, but how different is this virus from other viruses we've seen in the past? I mean, is there anything about this virus that surprises you in particular? No. So, so there have been a number of infections with coronaviruses. In fact, that's one of the most common causes of common cold, but those are all human coronaviruses. And the coronaviruses that have jumped from other species to humans have been the ones that have been most commonly associated with more severe infections. So this current virus, which is um, officially named SARS-CoV-2, is related to SARS-CoV, which was the cause of what was called SARS, which stood for Serious Acute Respiratory Syndrome, Um, back in the early 2000s, I think 2003, 2004. And the United States didn't have many cases. Um, It was mostly centered in Asia. Um, There were a lot of cases in Toronto and North America. So it, and it caused very serious disease, just like um, COVID-19. In fact, the mortality rates were actually a little bit higher than they were for COVID-19. And when you compare the genetic material of SARS-CoV to SARS-CoV-2, they're very, very similar. Um, There are genetic differences. That's why they're not the same virus, but they're very similar and um, cause um, very serious disease, both of them, primarily in the respiratory tract. But a lot of the things that we're doing and a lot of the strategies that we've implemented to control infections and things like that are all things that were learned during the SARS outbreak um, in 2003, 2004. There's another um, animal coronavirus, which is called MERS, which stands for Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. And that virus actually is a camel virus that got into humans. Whenever a virus jumps species, Um, because nobody in the new species has ever seen that virus before. There's no immunity, and that's why it's capable of causing more severe disease. And then it just depends on how efficient it is in infecting people um, as to how widely spread the disease will go. Right, and that seems to be the thing, right? Because um, I have to be careful about the way I say this because I don't want it to come off in any way sounding like I think there's a conspiracy where this was made in a lab. But it it seems like a very well-designed virus in that way where it can spread far and wide by being so subclinical, 
and people may not have symptoms. And that, that seems different than SARS and MERS. Like, I feel like with those, you got it, you had a really high chance of dying, basically. And this one, there's enough survival that it spreads. Is that, is that am I right yeah. about that? Yeah, I, I, think, I think to a degree, I, you know, um, everything is about survival of the fittest. And so for the most part, I don't think viruses are interested in killing their hosts. Um, because that's how they live, right? They, they require right. a host to survive. And so I think they want to make people sick and make people sick in a way that they'll transmit the virus to something else yeah. or somebody else. And, um, and I think it's just, um, you know, more collateral damage to their right. um, uh, attempt to um, survive within the environment. Um, I think um, it's not unprecedented, by the way, that, that viruses are transmitted before people actually have symptoms. It's very um, uh, common, actually. So measles is like that. Chickenpox is like that. A lot of the more contagious viruses are transmitted before people are sick. When we have, you know, if we had a chickenpox exposure, for example, in the hospital, and there were potentially people who were not immunized or who were not immune from naturally having chickenpox, we count back 48 hours before the onset of symptoms to look at the um, people who were potentially exposed. So, um, so I think this is not unprecedented. I, I think the, the thing that's trickier about this virus is that even the early symptoms are comparatively mild. And I think most people who have taken care of um, many COVID-19 patients realize that there's often a period of time for five to seven days where people have low-grade respiratory symptoms and then all of a sudden in the second week of illness because of the immune response, yeah. they take off and they get much sicker. And so that's a long period of time where somebody is right. not really, right? They're not in an ICU at that point. They're yeah. not even necessarily going to the, uh, to see their. No, physician. they're out there in the community. They're spreading exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's part of it. And, and so, um, I think that's one thing that uh, does make it um, uh, very um, contagious. The other thing that was interesting about the first SARS that I'm not aware of yet, or I'm not aware of the data, may be something out there that I'm not aware of, but with, um, with SARS-CoV, there were a lot of, um, it, it was, um, body as to who was transmitting. So there were these super shedders that may infect 20 or 30 or 50 people. And then there were people who didn't transmit it to anybody else. And, um, and so it all balanced out to say that there was maybe on average one and a half people infected for oh. every person, but it wasn't even uh, or an even distribution. We assume with, with SARS-CoV-2 that probably somewhere between two and three people get infected for every person. And whether that is um, uniform 
or whether there are these super shedders again in the same kind of way is not clear to me. Um, and again, if there are data out there, I'm just not aware I mean, of them. If it's not clear to you, it's probably not clear to anyone. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing about this. There's a, you really have to approach, even the, the experts have to approach this thing with a sense of humility because there's so much we don't know. Like, actually, let me ask you a question. And this is a small thing, but I'm just interested in why this might be. And nobody probably knows. But what is it with the sense of smell being lost with these patients? What is it about COVID that leads to a sense of smell? That's yeah, lost? yeah, and, and um, it's a good question. And in fact, um, it's very, very common, right? I don't think anybody was asking at the beginning. Yeah, I thought it was a white tail at first. I didn't start, believe it. Right, once you start asking people, yeah, even people that come in with, with more respiratory illnesses, they still can't smell. Yeah. Um, and it's, um, it's funny how common that is, you know, it's the virus lives in the, in the nasopharynx in the area just behind the nose. And so it must within that inflammation, um, involve the, the, um, the olfactory nerve system yeah. that leads to that smell. So I think it's just the location yeah. and then the nerve the nerves that pass through that area um, uh, where the inflammation is occurring that leads to that. Um, okay, so uh, Lizzie just joined us. Well, Hi guys. The next yeah. thing I was going to ask him, which um, I'll, I'll let you chime in here, is uh, as a country, sort of how we're doing overall. Okay, sure. Dr. Cohen, um, as a country, how do you <laughs> think we're doing overall with respect to the coronavirus? Great question. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, she took the words right out of your mouth, it appears. So I think, um, I, I, I think um, we could do better, we could have done better, uh, let's say it that way. Um, I, I think that, um, in fact, there was just a recent um, uh, article that I saw in the New York Times from an epidemiologist at Columbia that said if we had shut things down a week earlier that we'd have saved about 30 some thousand lives. Yeah. Right. And so um, I think that out here in California, I think we did a pretty good job, particularly Northern California was on top of it quickly. And I think we're um, maybe um, seeing the fact that we were ahead of the curve. Um, you know, um, around the country, though, things are still really moving along. And so even though the total numbers are going down, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's going down in New York and New Jersey, and they were, they accounted for such a large percentage of the cases in the United States that the overall curve looks like it's going down. But there are still a number of states where the numbers are going up and um, uh, and there are a number of states where things are staying relatively steady, which I think is sort of the picture out here in California, um, uh, steady to maybe a little bit downtrending. Right. Um, I think a more co coherent and cohesive response um, uh, would have helped uh, quite a bit. I think 
providing at very least providing one message and not contradicting every other thing that you say right. doesn't really help in containing uh, um, a pandemic. And I think, um, you know, this is an infectious disease. It's not really a political issue. And so people playing politics with it is sort of funky. And there, <laughs> this is not without historical um, uh, precedent either, by the way. I'll just bring up the fact that I'm old. And, um, <laughs> and so I was around at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic too, or that was a, really a pandemic as well. I say that's the first of the four pandemics that I was involved with. And so in the early 1980s, before anybody knew what was causing AIDS, there were all kinds of political things put in place it was put, they were put in place to protect patients, not to hurt patients. Um, and, but it was still became a very political disease. Right. Um, and, um, and really right. It's managing a, an infection. It's not politics. And I think that every time it gets sucked into politics, the responses are not as effective as they could be. I'm going to start using that term, like politicians dealing with viruses is funky. That's like the kindest way to phrase that <laughs> I've ever heard, and I adore it. So thank you going forward. I think you're setting a new trend. Um, yeah, I'm, so so you're talking- first thing I first time I've ever set a trend. <laughs> yeah, no, it's going to start. But um, so you're talking about where we are, we are in California, which I do think we really are ahead of the curve and what's happening in the rest of the country right now. But can you project or kind of just um, guess for us and for our listeners, do you think that we're going to see waves over the next few months? And then going forward beyond that, do you think like every season there's going to be a COVID season, like we have the flu season? We know COVID doesn't respond that much to like winter temperatures and stuff like that. But do you see, again, for the short term, like a wave of this happening over and over? And do you see um, future seasonal COVIDs? Yeah, I think, I mean, there have been, um, right, we have human coronaviruses and they're part of, part of the seasonal respiratory illnesses. So, yeah, and I think, you know, there's evidence from around the world that as um, restrictions are lifted, that cases go back up again and you have to potentially um, uh, tighten things up um, uh, back and forth. And so, I think it's, it, we probably will see um, uh, blips. Hopefully they're not huge blips. I think it is going to get confusing in, in October when it starts to be flu season or RSV mm -hmm. season and it's COVID season and you're going to have to try to distinguish between right. all of them. Right. I think it's, it, it may end up being a little bit of a trickier problem. And, um, and I, but I think that some of the lessons we've learned is that if you get on top of it quickly, you can probably control it and, uh, and minimize the, uh, uh, the damage. So, um, yeah, I suspect that this is going to be on and off until, uh, if, and when we get a vaccine. Um, but I think that, um, to me is a little bit of a, um, a learning curve, right? We know how the, how to address some of the uh, infection prevention kinds of things.
Um, we are learning maybe which drugs might be effective and which ones may no, not be. And so we should be better prepared uh, if it does make a significant recurrence um, next time through. Last thing I'll mention is that, you know, flu season ended very abruptly this year. I, I know that flu usually is gone by um, end of March or April anyhow, um, but it it dropped off when people started social distancing. Yeah. It right. got right. You mm -hmm. st stopped seeing flu cases too. And so I think that um, it's effective for a variety of things, right? I mean, we may truly be learning that this is, you know, I, I don't think anyone wants to be locked up, but I think you can sort of figure some of the strategies that you could do besides sheltering in place that will decrease your risks long term. Yeah. Well, you, you did mention it, and, and I'm going to ask you a question I'm sure you hate when people ask you, but I'm going to ask it anyways. What is your guess on a vaccine on when it'll be available? So, um, so I think um, it seems like people are relatively optimistic about um, the um, uh nucleic acid vaccine that's being uh, studied right now. Um, but you think about it, you have to have a big clinical trial to determine first whether it's safe, Yeah. right? You got a bunch of people running around that won't take vaccines that have been tested over years and years of right. vaccine development. Um, how enthusiastic is somebody going to be if they rush something out that is not um, as well defined from a safety profile? And then second, you got to make sure that actually um, de you develop immunity that will prevent infection. And I think right now we're not totally sure what components of the virus um, should be targeted to optimally uh, get an immune response and what's gonna actually prevent disease. And so I think um, uh, to me, a year is, is an optimistic uh, number. I think people are talking about maybe it getting done faster than that, but I have a hard time um, yeah. uh, fathoming that, to be honest. The other thing is um, uh, the company that that's developing the the sort of the lead vaccine right now has um, has partnered with a large pharmaceutical company because that's the other thing, right? You have to scale this stuff up. Yeah. So millions and right, millions. you right, you have to have millions of vaccines um, to go everywhere, and so um, so that's that in and of itself is a separate. Um, separate issues. So it'd be really quick to get it done in a year. It'd be shocking to me if it was done before that. Yeah. And the quickest vaccine I think that's ever been developed, I don't know which one it is, but I'm pretty sure the number is four years and we're talking yeah. months now. Right, exactly. Well, and I think, you know, think about it. Um, you guys were around, I think, um, for the um, H1N1 stuff in 2009. Yeah. And so um, that vaccine only took a year to, to come up with 
but that's because they've been making flu vaccines forever. Right. And all they had to do was plug that virus into the usual recipe oh. for making a flu vaccine. They weren't so they had a head start. From, yeah. Right. They weren't starting from scratch. They were yeah. just, I mean, flu vaccines are made every year based on whatever the strain is. So they just, this one had to be for a, a new strain and that was that, right? And so it was plugged in, it was ready to go. But um, uh, this is something totally new. And the the other thing, I, I don't want to throw cold water on this either mm-hmm. because I'm very hopeful about a vaccine too. But you know, you look at this um, illness uh, that, uh, this virus is causing in kids, and I'm not a pediatrician, but it's this multi-system inflammatory process. And you also think, I wonder whether vaccines could trigger something like that, or um, uh, how does a, how do you modulate that so that you don't get a, um, potentially a, a bad disease? because this disease, right. a large component of the symptoms is the immune response. So right. how do you get a good good immune response, but a targeted, focused, modulated right. immune response huh. that doesn't go crazy and cause potentially more problems? That's fascinating information about vaccines. Um, and everything you read today is really about treatments, you know, and President Trump has told us recently that he's on hydroxychloroquine as preventative, just a precaution. So we know that there's so many trials and uh, ongoing studies, right, as we're talking about hydroxychloroquine, convalescent plasma, and remdesivir. Um, So what do you think about what's happening, I guess, you know, with the data that we're getting, which I do think every day is a little bit different and sometimes contradictory, and that's not all the politicians' fault, I think. There's just so much happening, right, with with this information. So do you think that one of these, maybe Rindesivir, what do you think that the status of that is yeah. right now? So so we've been, we were one of the sites for the randomized NIH um, Remdesivir trial, mm-hmm. which compared Remdesivir to a placebo. And, um, but the placebo was what's called standard of care. Right, so standard of care right now for a COVID patient is ICU management or ward management with oxygen, or right, and maintaining their hydration so their kidney function is good, and and you know dealing with all the um, uh, multiple medical complications or potential problems that may occur. Right, like like physicians do all the time, regardless of what the um, reason that um, they have those symptoms is. So um, so in that trial, the um, duration of illness was shortened uh, by about four days. Um, there was a little bit, and that was a statistically significant difference. Um, there was, um, a lower death rate, even though it didn't reach um, statistical significance. And I think, actually, I suspect that that paper is going to be out in the next couple of weeks um, uh, on that um, trial. So, um, so my sense from that is, first, 
that's the right way to do it. That's what I was talking about by being ready for um, the next wave, because part of the reason I'm not going to be able to answer the other ones very well is because they're people are just giving them right. It's it's willy nilly, yeah. It, well, it's desperation, right? They've got really sick patients. They want to do something for them. I I don't just right. I don't have a problem with that, but if you do it in a non randomized way, you have no good way of determining whether the patient would have gotten better or not, right. whether yeah. they would have done badly or not. You yeah. have no real idea. So this is, I think, um, uh, the first step towards something. Um, I don't think that this is the magic bullet. Um, I don't think that this is going to be the final story. Um, it's an IV medication, so you can't really start it super early. Um, you surely can't treat outpatients with it. And, um, and so I think there are a variety of um, issues that may um, uh, play into how it works. And I think ultimately the requirement is going to probably be more than one drug to really treat this. Right. Regarding... And, and you you bring up a really good point, which is now at least there will be something other than placebo, which is nothing, just supportive management to to compare future medicines to. And and that's exactly right. And the the second step in that NIH trial actually uses remdesivir as the standard of care arm, um, and compares um, actually a combination of two drugs uh, with remdesivir. Um, and one of the two drugs in the combination is remdesivir. So everybody gets it. And so I think that's the, that is the argument. With hydroxychloroquine, um, you guys have all used this at some point in your medical career, I'm sure. And it, um, it's an immune modulating drug and it also may also slow down virus replication by um, uh, changing the way the virus gets into the cells. Um, but um, none of the studies have been done in a very randomized way. There actually is a placebo control trial that's being run now, but nothing that we're hearing about relates to that. Mm -hmm. University of Minnesota did a prophylaxis study, and we will have data on whether that actually works or not. Um, so. Right now, I think the jury's out. I am not overwhelmingly enthusiastic about it, but I'm willing to wait for the data. And I know that there are um, cardiac issues and other kinds of problems right. that may ultimately play a role, and that's part of the risk benefit. Regarding convalescent plasma, um, that's a little bit of a, um, a black box right now, and I'll, I'll tell you why. So, um, so the, the basis of convalescent plasma, for those who are not familiar, is that th this is um, uh, the liquid part of people's blood that um, taken from patients who have um, had COVID and got better. That's what convalescence is. And so that suggests that their immune response was effective in controlling the COVID infection. And therefore, 
the thought would be that that might be beneficial if you give it to somebody else. The evidence that antibodies work is variable, right? It, it didn't work for, um, for Ebola. They always tried, it didn't, go, it didn't work. There was a little bit of data with SARS that suggested that it did work. Um, and so it is being studied. The problem right now is that there are not enough people to donate plasma right now because at the beginning of the um, pandemic, at least in the United States, we didn't have enough tests. So there were a lot of people who probably got over it um, and never were tested. And so you're really not a candidate yet to donate um, uh, plasma at this point. I think that the real good place for, for it will be as a preventative um, and somebody, let's just say a family member got sick, um, you could give the plasma to the other family member to pre prevent it. But that's of historical interest to me because again, you guys were all hepatitis B vaccinated by the time you got into medicine. Mm -hmm. but there was not even a hepatitis B vaccine when I did get into medicine. And if we had a needle stick from somebody with hepatitis B, we got hepatitis B immune globulin. That was, that was the way the disease was prevented. And, um, and so I think there's, some, there's precedence for that. Um, and I think that's a, that seems like that would be a really nice niche for it in potentially in big outbreak circumstances, but surely in family circumstances as well. And then I think for treatment, it might be um, a nice adjunct to an antiviral or to something that addresses the immune response. Right. Yeah. The same way we treat newborn infants born to mothers with hepatitis B and the child hasn't been able to be vaccinated. There you go. That's exactly right. You're giving, you get, you, but, and then you can give them vaccine along yeah. with it, which we yeah. can't really do with COVID. That's Not yet, correct. at least. Um, okay. Um, so one last question for you. Uh, you know, on our show, we deal with battling misinformation online a lot. That's like one of the major things that Lizzie and I do and what I spend a lot of time on Twitter and Facebook doing um, to my, the detriment of my mental health. But of all the things you've seen that have either been promoted or uh, talked about uh, or misunderstood, what, what do you think is the, the, the biggest? What's the one that really stands out in your mind that you would like to really clear up? and that you find needs still maybe to be cleared up? Well, um, you know, I don't do Twitter and I don't, <laughs> I don't do Facebook. Good for you. <laughs> so, right, I, I told you I'm an old man. Oh, uh, so smart. So you know, I, you um, wisdom. It's amazing to me how fast all this has happened. Again, I want to put one thing in perspective, I know everyone wants to call this, uh, um, uh, you know, that we all have been moving pretty slowly, but think about back in 1981 when, um, when AIDS happened. It took till about summer of 1983 before people knew what caused it. Right, so a year and a half after people started seeing clinical illness, um, the virus was identified. 
-hmm. It was early 1985 before there was a lab test to identify the, the virus. Four years after the illness started. We knew what caused this about two weeks after, um, after they first started seeing cases. Yeah. We already had diagnostic tests two days later, right? It, it's been incredible how fast things move now. Yeah. Um, and, but people are never satisfied and they don't trust anything. And I often ask myself, what happens, what would have happened if during the beginning of the AIDS pandemic, there was Twitter and Facebook <laughs> and all that other stuff, <laughs> it would have been, right? It would have been unbelievable. Oh, even and, more of a nightmare than it was. Right. Yeah. I, exactly. I think some of this, right, there's too much noise. That's why you guys are wearing the, your headphones to keep the noise <laughs> out. And so, and, and think, because it looks super cool. Yeah, it does but look yeah. very cool. No. Professional, well, Dr. Cohn. We're professional. <laughs> semi-pro, semi-pro. No, yeah, I think, a, anyhow, so yeah, I think, I think that kind of stuff, yeah, that's really... It's hard for medical people to really um, uh, get too focused on that um, because it's you can't really argue with people that don't trust anything you say. Yeah. Right. That's 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 why you can't debunk things, right? When you're talking two different languages. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no way to fix that. Yeah, you're exactly right. There's it's a, it it's a conversation that very very rarely goes anywhere. Well. Um, Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for your time. Um, we really appreciate it. You gave us and our listeners a ton of really useful information. Um, and we really appreciate the work you're doing. I mean, it's always been important, but I mean, never more so than now, um, the work you do. So thank you for that. And, and thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you guys for inviting me. I appreciate it. The opinions on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific health care and medical needs or concerns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.